Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my friend, Ambassador Javier Ruperez. Ambassador Ruperez was the Spanish ambassador to the United States. He had a illustrious career at the intersection of politics, and foreign policy, and multilateralism. He uh, started his career as a foreign service officer in the Spanish Foreign Service. He was also a critical actor in Spain's transition to democracy as a political appointee. He also led the campaign for Spain to join NATO in the early 80s, a close run thing and something we want to talk about. He also had took on a number of leadership roles in the multilateral system as well and served as Spain's ambassador to the United States. He's known in Spain for a number of things. He's written a number of books. He's written four of them in Spanish. I've read one of them and I look forward to reading the others. He was sadly a victim of kidnapping and was uh, kidnapped for about a month by the terrorist group ETA in the 1970s. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. And I believe one of his kidnappers is still kind of at large and is active. And I know that that's something uh, we'll probably talk about as well. But I think Ambassador Perez is somebody who has been an important actor. One of the things I've taken away from reading Ambassador Perez's memoirs a couple of years ago is that if we want to see major change happen in countries, it requires effective and enlightened political leadership. And folks like Ambassador Perez provided that sort of effective and enlightened political leadership. Anyways, Ambassador Perez, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Don. It's my pleasure to be here. I mean, to see you in the distance, but at the same time to renew our old and very good links. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. I read your memoir and I was fascinated by it. You came of age before 1975. Could you talk about what it was like growing up in Spain before 1975? And could you talk about what it was like joining the Spanish Foreign Service in the 1960s? What was that like? One thing we have to take into account is that, after all, we are talking about Franco's times. I mean, we have to remember that uh, the Civil War lasted from 36 to 39. I was born in 1941. So the first part of my life was uh, during Franco's times. Franco's times was a rather various, different times. The first part of it was really terrible. I mean, the part between 1939 and 1950 was uh, really the real tough dictatorship. But then later on, there were several different phases of the dictatorship, and I was lucky enough to live through the, the last part of it, what we would call the last years of Frankism. And, uh, uh, I went to um, school between 1950-1955. I joined the university in 1962. I joined the service in 1965. And all those last years of the last phases of Frankism were not exactly what one would consider to be the tough dictatorship. We would call it the rather soft dictatorship. And um, if you read all the books about uh, Frankism and uh, you realize that there were several approaches, and as a matter of fact, the one I came to know as a grown up was different from the beginning. That allows me to go to a private school, which was a liberal in the European terms of the word, not in the American term of the word. 
At the same time, to join very early on at the university, a number of uh, political forces, Christian democratic forces, which were clearly opposed to Frankism. I would say they were allowed by Frankism, since we were not allowed to be a political party. But I was one of the founders, for instance, of someone you might have known or heard about, who was Joaquin Ruiz Jimenez, who in the early 1960s created a magazine called Cuadernos para el Diálogo, sort of copybooks for the dialogue. I was one of the few founders, and I was 21, 22 at the time. So that was part of my university years. And uh, so I was very much involved in the political life even before joining the service. And then when I read my law, I read uh, journalism at the University of Madrid, and then later on I, I decided to become a diplomat. There was uh, no precedent in my family of being a diplomat because my father was a medical doctor in the army, in the Air Force, and uh, I, I thought that was a good beginning for my life. I was very much interested in international affairs. So I joined the service, and um, again in 1965, I was posted in 1967 to Ethiopia, all places. And uh, well, that's the beginning of my life. So I wouldn't complain about those last years of Frankism. I did everything possible to bring democracy back to the country. I knew very well that Frankism was not good for the country. At the same time, I would be wrong saying that uh, I was under the suspicion of being wrong at that time. So uh, that's in a nutshell what I went through in those last years of Franco's, Franco's years, Franco's time. In your early postings from 1965 through 1975, you served, I think, in maybe Poland or Romania, if I recall correctly. You had some interesting experiences serving. You went to a funeral of a Spanish exile, uh, someone who was in exile, I think, in Eastern Europe after the end of the Civil War the losing side of the Spanish Civil War, many went into exile into sort of the Soviet space. Talk a little bit about that, just a little bit about some of the sorts of experiences that you had in that while you were in the Foreign Service under the Franco period and, and some of the issues that it brought. Well, being a diplomat under the Franco period was to belong to a rather isolated diplomatic service because we were nowhere to be found. Well, it's is not exactly true. We have to remember that 1953, Franco signed with the United States of America the first bilateral security treaty between the two countries, which was a real first step in a line of actions which were sort of pushing forward Spain belonging to the Western world. Since the 1953 treaties were rather peculiar because after all that was the beginning of the Cold War and uh, Spain was a good ally for the United States of America at that time. Spain had not been allowed to belong at the beginning to the United Nations because he had been an ally of the Nazi forces in Germany. But then later on, the Cold War changed uh, all those things. And then Spain became a rather sort of uh, secondary ally to the United States at that time, 1953. But the fact remains that Spain was isolated, isolated politically, isolated economically, isolated socially, and isolated diplomatically. And uh, being a diplomat on the Franco times was uh, to realize really how isolated you were. So that was my first time was Ethiopia. Ethiopia was a rather interesting place to be. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't feel any sort of isolation in particular. But then after two years in Ethiopia, well, you know, how is the, the turnover of diplomats? We were offered to go some other place. I was offered to go to Chile. But I thought it was right at the time when the foreign minister of the time, called López Bravo, who was a rather intelligent man, decided to open some sort of consular representations. 
Mind you, Spain did not have political diplomatic relations with the Warsaw Pact. I mean, we didn't have an embassy in Moscow, or an embassy in Poland, or an embassy in anywhere of those places. And I thought, well, instead of going to Chile, why not try and go to Warsaw? Because after all, there was completely unknown territory for all of us. So I applied to go to Warsaw. I was sent to Poland. I discovered the Eastern world. I did realize how terrible socialism was. But at the same time, I enjoyed living in Poland because Poland in many ways is rather similar to Spain. I mean, we both extremes of the continent. We are both basically Christian countries. And uh, I was quite interested in finding out, after all, the Poles knew quite a lot of things about Spain. We didn't know anything about Poland. So I started to discover what was Poland about. Poland was a freer of the Eastern countries for the time being. And I found out that quite a number of uh, Spanish citizens who had escaped from the civil war, going first of all to France, then to Poland, were still living there. They were members of the Communist Party. They were rather old people and uh, living rather difficult lives because they didn't know the language. They hadn't learned the language. They were finding some difficulties. And I, I did everything possible just to approach them because after all, they were my citizens and I was supposed to take care of them. So I, I did what I could in that respect. And as a matter of fact, I discovered much to my surprise, but that after all, much to my rather agreeable surprise, it's uh, all those people who wanted from that group, wanted to go back to Spain, didn't have any problem. I mean, I uh, went through the administration just to get them the passports. They went back to Spain, they didn't have any problem going back and forward between Spain and Poland. But at the same time, I discovered that still Frankism was very much in action, and I was accused of helping the communists, you know. So that led to my early uh, leaving of Poland and being sent to one place, which had been absolutely basic for my learning as far as a diplomat, as far as a person, as a one involved in international affairs, which was Helsinki not because of Finland or not because of Helsinki, but because of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. I was sent there in, at the beginning, at the end of 70, 71, the end of 71. The preparation for the conference started in 1972. It was the first time Spain was invited to participate apart from the United Nations. We had the United Nations some years before, but it was the first time Spain was invited to participate as a full participant in an international conference. And I was the only Spanish diplomat following all the course of the TAC, from Helsinki in the first place to Geneva, which was the negotiation back to the Helsinki for the final phase. That was three years of my life, and I learned everything. The first thing I learned is that we were really isolated. I mean, it's not that uh, anyone told us anything, but uh, that was the beginning very much of, of the TAC working on the basis of the caucuses, the European caucuses, the NATO caucuses, the Eastern Bloc, the non-aligned caucuses. There were two countries which didn't belong to any caucus. One of them was a Holy See, and the other one was Spain. But at the same time, I learned about all the international instruments, all the working of the international negotiations. I mean, at the end of the day, we had to belong. The main purpose, the main deficit of our life was not belonged. So that was, uh, well, my life, my the first part of my diplomatic life. The, the conference uh, lasted in 1975. Franco died in 1975. I went back to Madrid in 75, and I started a new phase of my life, both uh, politically, professionally, and personally. 
that's the beginning of my life, and that was my remembrances of it. I lived in Spain for a long time. You know, I love Spain. I admire Spain very much. And I think that Spain's transition to democracy starting in 1975 is often cited as one of the great successes of the latter part of the 20th century of a democratic transition. Many other countries have looked to it for guidance, both in Latin America, but elsewhere as well, the Arab world, elsewhere. And But you were present at the creation. You were active. You'd been a member of the government. You'd been a public functionary in the Foreign Service. How did you end up getting involved in politics? So Franco dies, King Juan Carlos II names Adolfo Suarez to be sort of the interim prime minister or something like that, uh, over, and had that role for a period of time. And he begins to set in motion in partnership with King Juan Carlos, a series of reforms and changes that lead to the healthy democracy that we have today in Spain, or relatively healthy democracy we have in Spain today. So talk about what happened in 1975 and what was your connection to it? Well, uh, there are two sides of my uh, activities. On one side, I had been already involved in politics, and uh, my friends were there, um, the old friends of mine, the ones in Cuadernos para el Diálogo, the, the ones belonging to the Christian Democratic Parties, and so on and so forth. So they were always there. But at the same time, I was a diplomat. I was a professional diplomat, and I remember very well on the... It was Christmas Day on 1975. I had, a few months before, I was back to Madrid from Geneva, which was my last posting. I got a phone call from the then Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs called Marcelino Oreja, who was an old friend of mine. He was a diplomat. He had been working as a chief of staff for Renova Foreign Minister in Franco's times. And the Undersecretary Oreja asked me to be his chief of staff. I was rather surprised because I was uh, trying to find out exactly how I was going to sort of interact within the ministry. But I thought, well, why not? After all, being a chief of staff of the second man in the ministry was something positive. And uh, mind you, at the time, Adolfo Suárez was not yet the, the prime minister. The prime minister was the last prime minister under Franco. So that lasted for six months. In the month of July 76, uh, the king, Juan Carlos I, decided to appoint Adolfo Suárez as uh, prime minister and the undersecretary of the foreign affairs, uh, Marcelino Reja, became foreign minister. And he asked me to continue as his chief of staff in the foreign minister. So that was my continuation, that my presence in the administration at a rather significant post. And we started to draw the basis for the new foreign policy. And uh, well, my experience uh, working for the CSC was absolutely fundamental from that viewpoint, because I knew that we had to sign all the documents on human rights and fundamental freedoms that we had to offer guarantees to the outside world that we were going to become a democracy. We had to offer guarantees in that respect. We had to resume the normal diplomatic relations with the world. Mind you, it was not only that we didn't have relations with the Warsaw Pact countries. We didn't have relations with Mexico, for instance. We didn't have relations with Israel. And uh, we had to set the basis for that. Uh, so we started to work on those bases and I was there for a couple of years, a couple of years, uh, so 75, 77. And at the end of 75, Prime Minister Suarez asked me to become a member of parliament. And uh, well, I started to work for the new party, the Union for the Democratic Center, which was a party made up of different tendencies and sources and people coming from the late Franco's times, uh, liberals, Christian Democrats, and so on and so forth. And I became the foreign affairs spokesman for that party. 
I ran for election in, uh, in parliament in 1979. I became uh, a member of parliament at that time. And uh, well, that was the beginning of the sort of going back to the purely and totally democratic life uh, together with my friends and people who are not friends. I mean, you referred to the fact that transition after all was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. We didn't know exactly how we were going to do after Franco's death, because Franco had been the dictator for 40 years, and all the systems were very much according to him. Mind you, the country had been changing. Economically, we were doing better than we were doing in 1939, after the Civil War. There were the first approaches to the United States on one side, to the European Union on the other side. We were not members of the European Union. But at the same time, we started to well, tourism was really flourishing in Spain, and quite a number of people coming from abroad were exactly an example of how they were living, and sometimes setting the basis for us to try to, to be exactly like they were. So the atmosphere was different, but the main factor remains that uh, the parties on the left and the parties on the right and the parties of the middle, those parties who had opposed Franco, the parties were coming from the late times of Franco, decided to get together, decided to forget about the past, decided to reconcile and set the basis for a new Spain. And that was the constitution in 1978. We were very much involved in all the process. Mind you, it was not a difficult, it was not an easy process, but that constitution, 1978, which remains the same constitution right now, is very much a reflection of the success of that uh, transition to democracy. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember how proud we were of the fact that uh, we've done it. That we've been able to uh, make the transition from dictatorship to democracy with uh, practically no violence, apart from the terrorism which we were suffering, but with no violence, with a lot of efforts, all the sides to reconcile, to pardon, to take into account the future and not the past, and put it together in a, in a text. So that was a remarkable time, a remarkable time. I'm extremely proud of it. I will always remember it. And I, I do hope that uh, the succeeding generations will take into account what was achieved in that time, because after all, times change, obviously, but the example should remain as to what to do in the future in terms of getting the country together, getting the citizens together, and working together for the good of all of us. There was a debate within the Suarez government about whether Spain should be a member of the non-aligned movement. Talk about that. And then talk about the debate within the Suarez government about whether or not Spain should join NATO. And you talk a little bit about why. And you were always in favor of joining the West and joining NATO. And you led that. I want to talk about that in a minute. But talk about what the thinking was. What was the mindset among the various stakeholders about this? There are several things to be taken into account. On one side, Franco was isolated, and, uh, and he, he knew very well that he couldn't be admitted in the Western caucus, uh, as, as we may put it. And uh, at the end of his period, quite a number of ministers started to think in, about uh, the non-aligned movement, because they thought, well, we are not allowed to become part of Europe, we are not allowed to become part of NATO, but those non-allied, well, we have the Cubans and the Egyptians and the Indonesians. Why not? That's uh, another possibility. Another factor we have to take into account is that, after all, the forces, political forces, both on the left and on the right, the democratic political forces, were rather doubtful about the United States of America, because, after all, the Americans have been helping Franco, have been on the side of Franco. 
And that was uh, applied against the Americans and against uh, the best example of the presence of the Americans in Europe, which was NATO, you know. And that was some sort of political ideological basis why people were rather, what some people were rather in favor of the non-aligned movement and uh, against NATO. My experience was absolutely different because, and, and again, I go back to the CAC, I learned how the world was functioning through all the negotiations we were leading at the time. And I knew very well that we should belong to where we should belong. And uh, belonging of ours was the European democratic countries and, and the NATO membership. I didn't have any doubt for that. So when we started to discuss it among the political forces in parliament, my line together, in, first of all, in my own party in the UCD was to convince them, well, we have to try and belong. We have to try and belong to the Western organizations. And then one of the things I have to do was to try and convince Suarez to do that. Suarez was not very much in favor of NATO. And I understand the reasons why, because what he had to do was to try and put all the parties together. You know, the, the socialists, the communists were not in favor of NATO. And he was trying to keep the country together before talking about NATO. But finally, I, I mean, it's not that I convinced Suarez, but certainly the power of the reality convinced him that after all, there were two options. Yes, two options we have to follow. One was Europe and the other one was NATO. And I remember very well, I had a very close relationship with Suarez and he was always uh, making jokes about me. Well, here is the one favorite in NATO and he wants to be friend of the Americans and so on and so forth. But one day in 1981, I remember very well that I went to see him with the one who was at the time the president of the European People's Party, the former Prime Minister of Belgium, Tindemans. And we had a long conversation about a couple of things. And at the end of it, before when Tindemans was leaving, he asked me to remain because he wanted to tell me that he had decided to join NATO. And I thought, well, goodness me, that's it. And uh, well, it took some time because 1981 was the year when he was forced to uh, resign because there were a number of problems with the military people. There was a new prime minister. Well, in between, we had the coup d'etat on February 23rd, 1981. And uh, but uh, the new prime minister, Leopoldo Carlos Taylor, who was a very close friend of mine as well, he was the one who did it. He was the one to bring the question of NATO to parliament. He was the one to preside over all the rather difficult negotiations we had just to convince the socialists. They were not convinced. But uh, finally, we got the majority of the parliament in both houses just to join NATO. And I, I'm the one who introduced Spain to NATO, but certainly I did something to do that. And uh, well, there we are. There we are. And uh, the next step was uh, the European Union took some more years, but we did it. There was a NATO referendum in 1986. You were involved with that referendum, right? Yeah, that's later on. Um, we have to remember that uh, when we joined NATO, that was in 1981 and 1982, against the socialists, there were two main forces, UCD on the right, center-right, and uh, socialists on the center-left. Felipe González was the leader of the, of the socialists. And when we joined NATO, they led a very soft, powerful campaign saying, not to the entrance in NATO. And uh, when we did it, and uh, then in 1982, the, there were general elections, socialists won, unfortunately, UCD disappeared. And the first, one of the first things they did was to announce that we were going to withdraw from NATO. 
Well, they didn't because uh, the rest of the Europeans told them, if you want to join the Union, the European Union, you have to remain in NATO. That's one of the messages they got from the Germans. So that was 18, 1982, 1986. That message of nothing with NATO, no against NATO, was changed into for NATO in the interest of Spain. You know, that's something which um, the socialists do sometimes. I was involved in that. I was a member of parliament uh, at the time. Mind you, uh, in the meantime, I had been ambassador to NATO. I was the first ambassador to NATO in between 1982, 1982 and the beginning of 1983, just uh, after the Soviets came to power. I went back to Spain. I ran for election. I ran for election in the Senate. I was a senator for a while, and then I ran for election in the House. I was a member of parliament for a while in a coalition which were, have you, I'm sure you've heard about Fraga. He's very famous. He was the valedictorian, tops in his class in university in Spain. He was security minister for Franco. He was ambassador of the United Kingdom. He was also then famously for probably 25 years, he was governor of the northwest province of Spain of Galicia and was the founder of the Popular Alliance Party, which turned into the Popular Party later, right? Is that Fraga? Yeah, Fraga uh, was, uh, well, Fraga had been a minister with Franco. I mean, he was coming from the Frankish side, but at the same time, he was a very intelligent and very able man. Brilliant and, uh, man. He was very much on the right all the time. But at the same time, when UCD, I mean, Suarez Party disappeared, he remained as the main figure on the right wing side. And he uh, sort of filled that space. He took yeah, that space. He did. he did. And he put together a coalition. I was a member of that coalition. as a, I was the leader of the Christian Democratic Party. That was coalition with the former Frankists of the latest times, plus the liberals, plus the Christian Democrats. And Fraga in 1986, and I think that was the wrong decision, he decided to abstain in the referendum on NATO. That was a mistake. That was a, one of the things that I, I consider in my own political life a mistake. But I, I mean, he won. Um, so Felipe González won the referendum. That meant that the socialists had decided to stay in NATO, and we've been saying there, there were a number of other technical problems there that I wouldn't bother to tell you about, but that was the reason. So 1982, no to NATO. 1986, yes to NATO in the interest of Spain. So we are there, <laughs> we remain there. I, uh, I remember many times going to Brussels and going through the headquarters of NATO and seeing uh, our flag there. And I thought, well, if uh, the Spanish flag is there, is in some respects thanks to me, you know, and I'm proud of it. It's fabulous. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 